Hello and welcome to the Tao of Wow, a podcast about the intersection of technology, society and internet culture with a dash of philosophy and art for good measure. I'm Doug Bellashaw. And I'm Laura Hilliger. Laura, what have you been up to since the last time we spoke? Well, we spoke yesterday because we speak yes, on know, most days. <laughs> for the benefit of listeners. Um, yeah, I mean, we have been doing quite a bit of work with a number of different clients. And we've continued to work uh, quite closely uh, with a number of folks at Greenpeace doing all kinds of different stuff there. Uh, and we've recently has kicked off a project with Participate. Um, and I, I really like this project because it has a cool name and it's, uh, I'm learning a lot. I'm getting to sort of onboard myself to some of the work that they've been doing. Um, and, and that's been really interesting. So that, that's the keeping badges weird project, um, uh, which is sort of a code name for us. Um, mm. yeah. Yeah. And so the interesting thing for me, two things, first of all, they're very up for working in the open, like we do. So we'll stick in the show notes kind of a link to how we use Trello and also to their Trello board that we're using with them live because why not share everything? People can learn. And also the reason it's called Keeping Badges Weird is that there's a bit of a feeling, I guess, that since Mozilla handed over stewardship of the Open Badges project, like the stewardship over to IMS Global Learning Consortium, the badges have got a bit corporate and a bit kind of um, part of the institution uh, so keeping badges weird and focusing on like open recognition is quite an interesting thing to do. Well, also, I mean, um, the participate, you know, the the folks that or the organizations that are using the participate platform and, you know, the way that they're using badges in that platform are, I, I wouldn't call them weird, but they are definitely some some organizations that were there at the very beginning of badges. Um, so mm. like I know the National Writing Project is uh, using the Participate platform and doing social learning there. And I think that's uh, really interesting because I remember, what, 15 years ago doing, you know, maker-based workshops um, <laughs> around badges with their educators. And they were all, you know, all really interested in sort of the intellectual frameworks around badges and experimenting you know, as opposed to getting on the train when the train's already left the station. Nope, that's not an idiom. <laughs> uh, well, the participate thing reminds me of a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago with some people from Gradual. Mm -hmm. So it's um, G-R-A-D-U dot A-L. And this is a kind of a social learning platform community kind of thing. And they, you know, like at MozFest, either in person or online this year, they have kind of things going on across the whole festival. So it might be a game or it might be whatever. This one was trying to learn from other people. So proper social community learning. And so they've got a platform for that. They're trying to figure out how to, you know, how to make it into a, a thing, a couple of young younger guys. And their approach is you you map. So you map kind of the supply and demand of either your team's interests or your community's interests. You match to see what people want to learn and what people want to teach. And then you meet um, either one-to-one -one or in a facilitated kind of way. And so I was kind of giving them some advice. I ended up hanging out with them for about an hour and a half a couple of years ago. But it meshes quite nicely with the participate stuff because it's all around social learning. And what I see happening at the moment are like LMS providers and VLE providers and stuff trying to turn into what are called learning experience platforms or LXPs. 
And the idea there is that there's lots of different bits of content and there's like an algorithm which serves your content to learn that way. Whereas I think lots of people I know, including myself, learn from other people. Yeah. Um, and so it's a bit of a shame that the world seems to be going down the algorithmic, individualized way of doing things when actually participate, gradual, other people are trying to do it what I would say is the right way. Yep. I, I agree. Do gradual and participate. Have you introduced them? The... I haven't. I should do that. Yeah. I should do that. We I should also have... get Mark, Mark Otter, CEO of Participate, on this podcast. At some oh, point. we should do that. Note to self. Okay. I'll write it down. Cool. Here's my pen. So since last week, since we recorded the last one, um, we've had a co-op day. And I guess we can link to our Etherpad. Everything's open in terms of that and what we've been doing. Yeah. That was uh, that was a good day yesterday. I feel like we created more work for ourselves. <laughs> mm. as, so as... we're thinking about having a uh, an intern uh, who happens to be your niece. We're thinking about architecture participation stuff. We're thinking about like using Trello, maybe having an in-person meetup now that UK's coming out of lockdown. So loads of interesting stuff happening potentially this year. Yep. Although we're halfway through the year, so... Yeah, it feels weird to be halfway through the year. I know, it's almost June. And mm. I mean, I don't know about you, but the weather here is like a month behind. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so April was March. May is April. June is probably going to be May. I don't know. But... Um... And the other thing, just to wrap up kind of the work we're doing, we're looking, we continue to look at the stuff that Catalyst are sending out. We've done loads of Catalyst projects. We mentioned some of those in the previous episodes. So there's a new one, which, I mean, some of these Catalyst projects are really interesting. Mm. Like the one that we did together around definition with 10 different charities, the one that I did separate to the co-op around universal credit. This one is about creating a library of assets for organizations supporting people with long COVID. Yeah, um, so I just saw this brief this morning, actually. Um, I guess I shut down a little bit early because it was put in the the Slack channel um, which we can also link to, I believe, um, mm. yesterday evening. And I quickly read through this brief this morning and just felt like, I mean, throughout the pandemic, We Are Open has been working with charities and nonprofits almost exclusively. We've had one or two clients that were not uh, charity uh, over the past year and a half or so. Um, but we have and and we have been working like in response to COVID, especially with the catalyst work. Um, but this one is the first time that it's actually directly impacting or not impacting. That's the wrong word. Uh, directly with COVID as a theme. Um, so the mm -hmm. idea is, you know, collecting these resor resources to help people who have um, long term COVID from a healthcare perspective. Um, and doing the user research required to make sure that the people who are trying to access these resources, whether they are individuals or nonprofits, um, you know, are are able to use the system. I think that's that's really interesting, and it's for me, it feels like the first time that we're direct di um, influencing something around COVID from a healthcare perspective, like gathering yeah. healthcare resources. Yeah. I don't know if that makes well, sense I, because. Yeah, well, the rest of it has been like um, COVID has had an impact on the benefit system. So let's help that. Or COVID's had an impact on people who have young children or people who, um, I don't know, like have mental health issues or whatever. So helping those second order effects. But this is literally 
there are people who are struggling over the long term with COVID. How can we help them? Now, the thing which I find really interesting about this and why we should go for it is that it's it's firmly in our in our ballpark in the sense that we don't tend to do development work in terms of like the actual coding and programming. We do all the innovation work up to that point. So it even talks about weak notes, uh, it talks about personas, it talks about user need statements and user research. Um, and that's the kind of thing that I'm really interested in and I think we're good at. So yeah. we should do that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I guess we have more. Um, we should put that together then because the deadline is May 28th. And we will link to that in the show notes for anybody else who is wanting to apply to create a library of assets for organizations supporting people with long COVID. Mm. And you're going on holiday next week. So we should get that sorted out. Yes, we should. Soon. Um, and we're continuing to do that work with, with Greenpeace, the stuff that we can't talk about, um, as well as some of the stuff which is in the pipeline. Yep. But let's move on to the interesting and cool stuff for this week. Um, yeah, this, we, there's a bit, definitely a theme which we're going to get to, but let's go through like a few quick ones first. I think I sent you the terms and conditions game that I found on Hacker News this morning. Did you have a go at it? Oh, you found it this morning? Well, I uh, yeah. ended up running out of time today because I got into that game and I had to play the whole thing. Usually, you know, with um, a lot of games during my work day, I start to play it, have a look at how it is, and then usually don't finish it because it's my work day and I've got other things to do. Um, but this terms and conditions game, which we'll link to, it's termsandconditions.game. Uh, I had to play the entire thing. I think I did pretty good. I... Um, it says that at the end, they told me that they attempted to access my data 28 times, and I was kind enough to give it to them only four times. That's better than 62% of players. Uh, and it said that I was faster than 68% of players. So, you know, I, I like being better at games since I'm so poor at actual, like, you know, Rocket League. <laughs> so, the, so the setup is Evil Corp wants your data. It will use every trick in the book just um, to try and get it. Your mission is do not accept any terms and conditions, say no to all notifications and always opt out of cookies. And so they, tr yeah, they do every trick in the book to try and get you to agree to the terms and conditions, to access your date, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, and yeah, and the it's... dark patterns are quite, quite fun. Yeah. And it's, I mean, you really recognize reality there. You know, this, the, the next link on the list, I literally, I had to go and say manage cookies and then I had to click six different buttons so that I didn't allow Forbes to set 200 different uh, cookies from all kinds of different advertisers, you know, so that terms and conditions game, it, <laughs> it does um, quite mimic reality quite a, quite a bit. Well, another quick fun one, which I sent to Hannah, my wife this morning, who is a, a UX designer. Um, I think I've seen this before. It's called can't unsee dot space. And the idea is it starts off really easy and there's two images side by side and you have to say which one is correct. Yeah. So it starts off with like a mock-up of uh, a messaging app and, you know, the text is in Comic Sans, um, that kind of thing. But by the time you get to the hard level, it's talking about like the spacing and the, the amount of bevel and like if there's a little tiny typo and all these kinds of things. And it really makes you realize how much work goes into the design and the iteration of like really high touch 
apps that we use every day. So that's quite a cool one to have a look at as well. Yeah, I, th I think people underestimate the um, the job of designers, of UX designers, of user researchers, of of graphic designers, of designers in general. It's you know when you get on a tech team, uh, it's often the case that designers are not integrated into into the tech team in a way that mm. really makes sense for whatever the product is. I mean, you see this, you see this all the time. You see, you know, people hire 15 coders and one designer and they, yeah. and they think, oh, well, you know, we don't really need design. It's super easy. It's just a couple of boxes. No, that's. And sprinkle some pixie dust on it at the end, make it look good. Exactly. Kind of yeah. Um, what was interesting for me was that when, you know, I mentioned about Hannah, my wife, um, when she switched careers from being a primary school teacher to being UX designer. And she tried to explain what she was doing to her to her side of the family. They didn't realize that there were people who even did that. Like almost they hadn't thought about the fact that these apps that we use every day don't just come fully formed out yeah. of the ether. Yeah. Um, it's funny to see people's reactions. You should like link in the show notes to the Richard Scarry um, landscape of modern day jobs. So uh, I yes. read Richard Scarry books when I was a kid and it, they're like little animals and they had, it teaches kids about, you know, people in the world. So they had construction workers and fire work, um, you know, firemen and women and police officers. Um, and, and the books were little, you know, raccoons dressed up as police officers. And then it would explain what a police officer does. And you recently shared a link with me, um, that was like Richard Scary books for the 21st century, and I and there were things like shit poster and uh, you know meme maker and all these crazy jobs that people actually have. You know, I I actually saw Gitcoin is uh, hiring a shit poster. That was the name of the position. Like a Gitcoin needs really? a shit. Yeah, Gitcoin is looking for a, a shit poster. Um, I can dig out that link wherever I, I found it. I thought that was interesting. I thought about going for it, but I don't have any any online experience <laughs> of shit posting. <laughs> Only real life experience of shit posting. If that makes sense. <laughs> I'm I'm awesome. too old. I'm, I'm too old to be a shit poster. I think. <laughs> Is that right? Is that right? That was my segue well, into our theme. <laughs> ah, I see. Right. So um, I'm going to make a note of the Richard Scarry thing. But so the next thing in terms of things that I'm definitely too old for now that I'm 40. My son, we don't let him have TikTok because he's, you know, definitely the kind of, you know, teenage boys especially get addicted to stuff. Um, and I think it's part of this hyper-focus that actually helps them flourish in life in different ways. But if he had TikTok, all he would do is just spend his life scrolling through. I've already banned him from, like, um, the YouTube app, um, all this kind of stuff that's quite addictive. Anyway, um so some of the TikTok culture does seep through from either him or just from people sharing some of the best things on there. And something which I saw on Twitter was just an amazing, not just one remix, but several remixes of an initial TikTok post, I guess you call it. So someone, and you kind of have to watch this to understand it. I think you've seen it, Laura. Mm -hmm. Someone was introducing their, their girlfriend, someone who has lots of followers, but he did it in kind of a weird and scary, weird man way. And so he was other super people... creepy. I mean, when I saw that, so, I almost turned it off, honestly. So like someone, for example, and go and have a look at this if you're listening. Like someone 
put like a video next to it with almost like a, a Nerf gun to his girlfriend's head with a little thing saying, hey, Brittany, blink twice if you need help. Um, and then someone added the legs on and then someone added like police response and then hostage situation, then it being on the news. And this video just grew legs and all the remixes. And given how much we've been into remix culture and how much of remix I put into kind of my digital literacies thesis, I think this kind of thing is just amazing and great and so so good to see. It, the the theme of it is a bit weird, but hey. Yeah. No, uh, folks should definitely definitely watch that one. That one. There's there's so much crap on TikTok though. Really, mm-hmm. like the amount of things that people that people post and the types of things too. You know, I I don't know. I mean, sometimes when I'm really tired and I can't think anymore, then I go and I scroll through. TikTok videos, uh, and I, you know, after about five ten minutes, I can't take any anymore. So, uh, oh, just too much. Yeah, it's it's kind of a guilty pleasure. It probably happens maybe once. I don't know. I probably scroll TikTok videos like once every two weeks for about five or ten mm. minute minutes, and then just like the fact that there are that many people in the world that are doing that much stupid, useless, pointless things and posting them on the internet, I find it really strange. Again, probably just because I'm old, but like I feel like if you're gonna post you're not it, not as old as me. It's all good. So <laughs> I just feel the... like if you're gonna post a video on the internet, then it should have some sort of a utility. Whether it's a in- introducing <laughs> some, I know, right? Like, I mean, it should be at least funny, you know, because there are a lot of video. Or maybe I just don't understand the concept of humor, and other people find different things funny. But there's like stuff on TikTok that is just I don't get it. Like, I just, mm. I'll have to find something. But that examples. kind of staring and scrolling and spending time just kind of zoning out. Um, I used to do that with Pinterest, mm-hmm. um, with ideas. So when the office that I'm sitting in, when it was new, so like seven years ago, when I was new to it, should I say, um, previous occupants made this office, I was thinking about what colors to do it. Like, so I was, look, I was looking at man cave ideas on Pinterest, and I spent ages and when we were converting the attic into our, like, we like to call it our, like, penthouse suite at the top of the house, we were thinking about ideas on that. But again, that has utility. It's not just random people you... saying, oh, hey, today I did this thing. I mean, I think I really think this conversation is leading us very nicely into our theme of the day, which um, has to do with the fact that we have now been called uh, geriatric millennials, <laughs> I guess. Um, and, and we, we collected a couple of links. This is this question of, you know, how, how the different generations respond to each other, particularly in work is something that mm. we've been paying attention to for a while not just the conversation, but also our experience of it. Um, you know, our experience of working with uh, people who are much younger, our experience of uh, working with people who are older and us being pretty squarely in that, I don't know if you consider yourself a millennial. I don't actually. I consider myself Gen X because when I was growing up, uh, all, yeah. I mean, I'm technically not a Gen X, but all, when I was growing up, all of my friends were always older than me and all of the Gen X descriptors fit. I had a pager when I was in high school. I remember the number. It was, uh, what was it? No, I don't remember. 885-8851. Yeah. Um, we had codes on the pager. I had a beeper. Yeah, okay, listeners can't see this, but Doug is looking at me like I'm nuts. He well, thinks look, I'm really old. The reason, I, the reason I'm <laughs> laughing, right, 
is because here's the thing. So mobile phones, and there's a very UK context to this, right? So mobile phones became a, a thing when I was in upper sixth. So this is when you're in you know, 17, 18 years old, you're in sixth form, you're doing your A-levels, right? Mm-hmm. So upper sixth, very last year of school, all right? And people started getting this very specific phone because you got it free if you opened a Barclays student bank account. You got a free phone, which was a huge deal. What kind of phone was but it? Everyone had this. It was like, it was pre-smartphone, obviously. There was no 3G. It was just literally Was a it a Motorola flip phone? No, it wasn't even. It was like, this phone was made specifically to get free on this bank account. Okay. So people started getting this phone. It had an extendable aerial. Anyway, I didn't really see the way the things were going. And I didn't want to be like everyone else. So I got a pager um, for going to university with. (laughs) Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Because I was like, hang on a minute. Why should I spend my credit on people, me phoning them? If they want to get hold of me... Um, like what? Anyway, anyway, I don't know what the reasoning was. It lasted about three weeks at university before I ended up buying a phone, and then I end up with that Matrix phone. You know, the the slider, Keanu Reeves, whatever. Oh one. right, right, right. Yeah. The really cool one. Wait, what? Um, what year anyway, was that? Nineteen ninety nine, and then going into two thousand. And the funny thing was, my dad had a mobile phone in like nineteen ninety four for his work. And it was like proper crackly, non-digital, old school one. But the really interesting thing is that this leads into this conversation because there's a series of posts here, which we're going to link to. And what they're saying is our generation or this kind of micro generation, the people who were born in the early or like late 1970s, early 1980s, we have remembered lived experience of what life was like before the internet ate everything. But also, we're young enough to be able to kind of speak that language. And so we're kind of the glue between stuff. So four years ago, this guy wrote a post on LinkedIn, because of course he wrote a post on LinkedIn, saying that, and this guy, Raphael Turcaroli um, from Hootsuite, and he basically invented a new name, which was a horrendous name. So I just ignored the post. (laughs) So, so, he I said, think, um, we are... so I think it was actually yeah. um, a professor at the University of Melbourne who came up with this term, but this post doesn't actually okay. link to it. So we'd have to go and like look it up, but whatever. Um, I also thought it was a stupid name. As How do you pronounce it? Xenial? 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 Yeah. A Xenial? So like millennial, but get rid of the mill and just put an X. Um, we'll link to this, but it's essentially saying that we are a micro generation born between the cusp years of Gen Xers and millennials, i.e. born between 1977 and 1983, when the original Star Wars trilogy was released, it says in the post. Of course. Um, of course. Yeah, and it, it basically but- says that it, we possess both Generation X cynicism and millennial op- optimism and drive. I definitely have the Gen X cynicism. But the interesting thing for me on that post is where it says, Xenials experience an analog childhood and a digital adulthood. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting way of putting it. So, like, how old were you when you got your first computer, Laura? 
Like 12? Um, well, it depends on what you mean by my first computer. So when I was about six, my dad mm. brought home a Commodore 64 for himself because he was learning how to use it at work, uh, along with a dot matrix printer. Uh, and he installed one game on that computer called Digger. Uh, and then about a year later, I got to start playing um, Super Solver Mystery Learning Games and Oregon Trail when Oregon Trail was new. Um, but I didn't have internet until I was, I mean, I think my mom got a dial-up connection when I was 13, 14. Mm -hmm. uh, so I definitely was, you know, with, with technology, um, I, I, I got an original Nintendo Entertainment System for seventh, eighth, when I was seven or eight, so, uh, mm -hmm. so I definitely was uh, grew up with all the newfangled toys, um, but it wasn't until you know I was thirteen or fourteen that I started to understand how communicating over digital technology was a mind blowing experience. And back then, I used to um, be a total internet troll. <laughs> really? Yeah, I hung out in Yahoo chat rooms and Yahoo pipes and and Usenet, you know, like forums and chat rooms and stuff and pretended to be somebody I wasn't. Uh, so I was a 12, 13-year-old girl and I was pretending to be, you know, a 30-year-old surfer from California. Huh. Random. I mean, really, I was I was not an... I don't think I... I wasn't outright mean. I just, you know, misrepresented myself quite a bit. On the internet, no one knows if you're a dog. That famous cartoon. Yeah. Um, I don't know. So, I think that's when I started thinking about identity, really, you know? Yeah, because you could play, and that's the thing, being a teenager on the early web, being able to play with your identity a bit. Mm -hmm. like, I I don't think I really, I, I think what I did was I didn't ever say how old I was and people assumed I was older. Yep. Maybe. Same. Mm -hmm. Um, But but yeah, that was a really interesting experience because like now, as a parent, I know to lock all the things down and do all the whatever, especially the way the web is now. But my parents didn't do any of that. So the amount of, you know, um, like reading of crazy conspiracy theories, the amount of like soft porn and the amount of like, I don't know, Japanese art and astronomy and all that kind of stuff that came my way unfolded was quite interesting. Um, and I wasn't shielded from any of that, yeah. which is Same. weird. And you just have to deal with it. Which when you're 14, 15, 16, like you have, you have to build up those defenses. Anyway. I think it's, it's, really, so, it's really interesting because if I think back to some of the communications that I had via old internet when I was a young girl, some of that stuff was really not appropriate. And no. um, actually, you know, if it happened today, <laughs> I mean, I had, you know, I had conversations with adult men over the internet when I was 13, 14 hmm. years old and didn't have like the, you know, frontal lobe to understand why that was maybe not a good idea. Uh, and, hmm. and I'm sure that if I were to go back and look at those text exchanges, I would be quite horrified. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Thank goodness there weren't uh, mobile phones with cameras and stuff. Right? Yeah. I can't. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, that was literally Yahoo chat rooms, you know. It's a little bit of a different. I remember having a conversation with a friend who you know as well. I'll not mention who it is. Who said there is no way I am giving my twelve-year-old daughter a mobile phone with a camera on it. Not happening. Mm -mm. Um, which I thought was an interesting. This was a few years ago, but interesting kind of uh, response. 
But what's happened since that 2017 post, um, especially recently? So there's one in here from September 2020 talking about Gen, Gen X. Um, and then another one in January saying why Gen X is going to save the web. But the most recent one, which I guess prompted this discussion now, is the one that um, came out the end of last month, which is about the hybrid workforce of the future, depending on this geriatric millennial. Um, so, yeah, should we just jump straight to... I mean, the other ones are useful for context, but should we just jump straight to the to the geriatric millennial post? Yeah, which I haven't read. So how about you introduce it? <laughs> well, basically it's saying... Um, uh, someone called Erica Darwin is saying, millennials born between 1980 and 1985, they know how to work across generational design uh, divides. Starts off by talking about some of those things that will be familiar with. So AOL, MSN, that kind of thing. Yeah. And how that was a whole different... There was the ways of speaking. There were, you know, uh, like acronyms, ways in which you interacted, which was different to offline. Um, and it talks about body language and it gives some examples. But basically the main thrust of the post is towards the end and especially the last bit where it says, geriatric millennials are valuable because they have a varied skill set to refer to one that lets them cater to the needs of people with different degrees of understanding of and patience for the digital world. Being fluent in both analog and digital communication styles is a key skill for today's leaders. Consulting your geriatric millennial colleagues is a great way to polish your fluency so you can meet the needs of everyone, end of quote. Mm -hmm. yeah, it kind of starts off talking about uh, the fact that the majority of people who are running tech companies um, and big sort of really well-known, um, yeah, just just apps, software, whatever, uh, digital things are actually all in this generation, which is mm. interesting. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, well, I, definitely, well, I, I definitely think that there, you know, people think that tech is going to solve all the problems and forget about the people side of things, uh, which is that analog bit. Like, yes, you mm. know, we're talking over technology, but the fact is, is that it it's not, you know, there are, I hate the term, but there are soft skills that go into mm. being able to relate and have empathy for people via technology. Um, and I definitely think that there, that people of a certain age display those competencies a bit better. I don't know. Hmm. No, I think so. And, I, and it, it takes me back to that thing about having a analog childhood and a digital adulthood. Um, yeah. There's something about if you grew up, hmm, definitely something about like coming of age when technology was coming of age, yeah, like and just growing up, like almost your your adulthood following the trajectory of the maturity of technology and the maturity of the internet. I wonder so that you you. So we both have you know teaching and learning background. We both have educator backgrounds. It's mm. almost like the way that we grew up was scaffolded alongside of te technology. Like we had a little bit of technology and we got used to that, and then we learned a little bit more and a little bit more. And you know today it's like it, there's just tech for everything. It's all over the place, and there is no scaffolding of the industry in the same way. And I wonder if the yes. reason that we're so comfortable with it. And the reason that we are so comfortable learning new things and that we don't get, you know, like people like us don't, uh, aren't confused by it, are able to sort out the truth from fiction, like especially, you know, with misinformation. I wonder if it all has to do with the fact that when we learned it, our brains were developing 
basically mm-hmm. like what you just said at sort of at the same rate and we just had that scaffolding so that we you know i think it'll be the same for like my kids generation with things like ai maybe mm-hmm. so for me ai is just like mind-blowing oh my goodness put that in a box over there whereas and i think douglas adams once said something about anything any technology that's invented after you were 35 just feels like completely wrong and against the order of things <clears throat> so I can imagine them just like growing up as AI being a normal thing. You know, we have all the Google stuff around the house. You know, they're used to smart assistants, everything like that. For me, it still feels a bit weird. So there's that kind of disconnect and I haven't grown up with it. Um, The example I was going to give was if you were learning how to do front-end web development or something like that now, like there's all of these JavaScript frameworks, there's all of these things you have to learn and it's all very complicated. Whereas when we were growing up, it was easy. Like CSS was a new thing. HTML was really simple. Dreamweaver, if you could get a dodgy version off the internet, like was really simple to use. I had a website, which I'm sure I've mentioned several times before, which was a Monty Python appreciation site. I was ripping wave files off the VHS plugged into my sound card and putting it on a website, which I called biggestdickers.net, after um, Monty Python's Life of Brian. Um, but yeah, like it was just a, it was very much a different time. And you felt like you were evolving as the web was evolving. And of course, that's true now. But the web is evolving now according to big tech, not according to the needs of humanity, I would say. Well, I mean, you know, I feel like I, I wonder... If that's not how tech has always evolved, you know, mm. I mean, I, I didn't really have a lot to do with the design of the systems that went into place back in the 80s and, you know, early 90s when the Internet started to grow. I don't know how much uh, people who were of a certain age during that time were really influencing the development of tech. But we certainly have a crazy world now and there are definitely some flaws in the system Um, Mm. And so, you know, part of the reason, like, I'm also, when it comes to AI, just a little flabbergasted. Um, But I think that, you know, it's people from our generation really need to wrap their brains around it, understand it, and try to design systems that are, you know, responsible to the future. Um, Mm. And that's one of the things that I really struggle with is, like, from a policy perspective and from that design perspective, like, what do we need to be doing now so that we can ensure that the ethics of tech are part of the you know whatever the future of tech is because that i think is something that i yeah i'm not sure i've written a little bit about like um you know the wild west of the of the open (coughs) web or the old web Hmm. um and the wild west of uh like blockchain at the moment for example um and sort of wondering like how do we how do we allow the creativity and the wildness and the fun of new innovative stuff to exist and flourish, but also protect people who are vulnerable to what happens when that's misused. And Mm. I think that's a really interesting social conversation that I think that we, you know, work a lot with when we're designing systems with charities and thinking about, you know, when you're coming at it from user-centric perspectives and being willing to change, you know, finding, you know, learning something isn't quite right for a particular marginalized group and actually giving a shit. The thing which plays on my mind is organizations like Mozilla say a lot of stuff about AI. Like that seems to be their latest thing, but they don't really have any skin in the game. 
they're just criticizing other companies because Mozilla doesn't do any, well, not much anyway, AI stuff. Um, so it's a, like they haven't got very much power to change stuff mm. apart from lobbying and, and whatever. But then if you're within an organization that does do AI stuff, the principal thing is the bottom line. So how do you, and we saw like the Google ethics and AI team get disbanded mm-hmm. and, and all this kind of stuff. So how do we navigate that? Is it government oversight? Is that problematic? Um, yeah, it's an interesting conversation. We should go down that avenue in a future episode. Yeah, maybe we should focus exclusively on on that question of is it government oversight for tech? Um, mm. You know, because like if you think about if you think about Airbnb, which is like the example everybody always gives, or Uber, or any of those, um, you know, sort of the the sharing economy startups. Um, there's there are winners and there are losers in that game. And if you talk about government regulations, um, you know, there were government regulations in place to protect citizens from certain kinds of events happening. And some of these mm-hmm. startups have managed to move around it. I don't know. Can you still call Airbnb a startup? Do we have another word for these? Do we just say tech companies now? Well, Dan Hodden was talking about how old some of the things that we use are, which we still consider to be new. Like yeah. Google Docs is 15 years old. Yeah. Um, and just that's quite, that that itself is quite geriatric in terms of tech um, and all this kind of stuff. And, and should we be expecting better? And in fact, and I'll not be able to dig out the link quickly, but there was a case of someone had put stuff in some Google Docs and it wasn't like humans from Google were going in there looking at it, but all of these things get scanned and it, it contravened Google's guidelines for acceptable speech or something. And so the Google Doc was no longer accessible to the person who made it. And there's all of this stuff going on about like who owns stuff, mm-hmm. um, like duty of care, regulation, all this stuff. There's, there's definitely a level of clarity of thinking that needs to be to be brought in there, um, and and just to mention a newsletter actually that if you if you like this podcast and and that kind of thing, um, Dan Hon, who I just mentioned there, he's just switched to self hosting his newsletter um, using something called Button Down, I think. Mm-hmm. So it's newsletter.danhon.com. He's originally uh, from the UK, but now he lives in the US, and he works in like the state of California on complex legacy systems and. He does like a stream of consciousness newsletter, which I always find quite interesting. Um, so you might like that. One thing which I've got to talk about, given our conversations about blockchain and crypto and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So there's a website called coinmarketcap.com, which I use quite a lot to find out more about different cryptocurrencies, see the current price of them, that kind of thing. Someone has come up with a, a website called Coin Carbon Cap. So on a previous episode, we were talking about different types of consensus mechanisms. So proof of work, proof of stake, whatever. And proof of work is particularly bad for the environment. It consumes lots of energy. And so this is a league table of kind of the top proof of work currencies. And they're ranking them by energy efficiency. So right at the bottom of the table is Bitcoin. And per transaction, it uses the equivalent carbon as driving 1,415 miles in a Tesla. Um, 
you can only do 2.4 transactions per megawatt hour of of energy, um, et cetera, et cetera. And it just puts it all into perspective. Dogecoin's on there as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, this table is really crazy. I wanted to ask you, what's um, I haven't heard of Bitcoin SV. So there's different forks of Bitcoin, uh, basically. There's like Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin right, SV, okay. there's Wrapped Bitcoin, which is on the Ethereum blockchain, all different kinds of stuff. And um, you're on Binance now. We got paid in crypto. Yeah. Some work we did with Nia. I was super excited about that uh, yesterday. I was like, ooh, I own crypto. Hmm. Mm. Mm. Um, I'm behind so, the curve. I'm, I'm one of those zennials or... You're, you're a geriatric I'm a geriatric millennial. millennial. <laughs> Just getting into the crypto game now, guys. <laughs> but like, I've got a bunch of different crypto things. I've got Chili's, which is like for people who want to make their own coins, like football teams like Juventus, Nancy Milan, and Paris Saint Germain. They can make their own coins based on this one called Chili's. There's different ones around decentralized storage, which I've written about. So I've got Seacoin and Filecoin and storage. Um, I've got Near, which is a bit like Ethereum, but it's got green credentials. Mm. Um, all different kinds of stuff, really. I've got um, BAT, which is the Brave one. So that stands for Basic Attention Token. Um, yeah, loads of all different ones. It's very interesting. But what I've decided, and I think I've mentioned this before as well, is that I'm trying to only invest in proof of stake coins and tokens yeah, the, and, the environmental uh the environmental imp- impact of blockchain is very concerning to me particularly i mean i've written a lot about nfts recently and the fact that nfts are going full on capitalism um i saw yesterday i think uh, i saw a post that um the guy who created rick and morty is working together with like Fox Animation to make a blockchain animated series, um, which will you know sell you NFTs of the characters and blah blah blah. And it's just like, okay, are you going to think about sustainability there, or are you just going to go all out, mm. not not even consider the environmental impacts of that, uh, put it on Ethereum or something else that is not particularly sustainable? Is there somebody on the team that's you know saying something about that? Um, because it's just, I don't, I find it a bit terrifying that we're really in a climate emergency and that, you know, all of the youth are out on the streets, not going to school on Fridays for like the last three years. Uh, and people who like just this corporate capitalist attitude is like, oh, well, you know, whatever, I'll be, I'll be dead. So let's make some NFT animation Mm -hmm. series with Mm Fox. What? Yeah, no, it is. I mean, there's, I mean, there's always kind of innovation happening and whatever, but some of the, I mean, is it is it okay to call them legacy cryptocurrencies? I don't know, but some of the geriatric ones, geriatric crypto geriatric cryptocurrencies. Yeah. That's what it is. Um, oh yeah, are kind of problematic. And you know, with the eye watering numbers that people are getting for NFTs and, and various other things, you know, you can't really blame people mm. for wanting that kind of cash. But at the same time, yeah, like oh, you yeah, said, I if mean... you're a if you're a company making these decisions maybe maybe shareholders should be holding to account i don't know yeah yeah um i think it's okay really what funny. else have we got well i was just i wanted to mention uh our our five-year-old 
blog post that we are open co-op turned five at the beginning of May. And we mentioned it last time. I wanted to mention it again because this was before we started talking about geriatric millennials and you had put that's like 57 years in internet time as the subtitle on that post, <laughs> just like anyway. And I, hmm. uh, I was remembering that a few minutes ago. So we'll link to that post again uh, because... Yeah, Doug was essentially telling the future of what we're going to talk about. Um, I don't know. Do you think we should, uh, shall we wrap it up and save some of these other meaty topics for next time? We're about at 44 minutes. Well, there's one in particular I'd like to share, which I think I sent to you earlier this week. Um, you know, we, I think you and I in particular wear our hearts on our sleeves and when we're feeling like crap, we tell each other, um, and this blog post, I think I sent to you earlier this week when one of us was feeling terrible and whatever, and it's such a great blog post. So Buster Benson, he's buying 750words.com. He's worked at loads of big tech companies and whatever. He's got a, a book called Why Are We Yelling? The Art of Productive Disagreement. But this particular blog post, I come back to time and time again. It's called Live Like a Hydra, Thoughts on How to Get Stronger When Things Are Chaotic. It references Nassim Nicholas Taleb's stuff around anti-fragility, uh, about chaos monkeys, um, how to live an anti-fragile way of life. But point six on this blog post is seven modes for seven heads. Um, and this is sometimes what I think about if I'm... And, and Laura, you and I in private conversations have talked about how we find it very difficult even on days off to not work mm. or to not feel guilty for not working. So these seven modes, there's recovery mode, novelty mode, work mode, self mode, flow mode, people mode, and gold mode. And I think for me, it's recommend it's, it's recognizing when I should be in recovery mode as opposed to work mode or flow mode or whatever. Yeah, I, I'm sure that I saw this post probably when it was posted years and years and years ago mm. and for, completely forgot about it, of course. Um but yeah, it's it's definitely one to read, and it's one that I intend to archive in a way that I actually can come back to it because I, I just find it really helpful to have a framework to um, sort of identify where, where you are at, at a, on a particular day, and then give yourself the the time and space to deal with that particular mode. And I think that this is also really helpful for teamwork and with colleagues to be able to have some sort of a framework where you can say you know what, I can't do that today. I'm in this mode and this is just, it doesn't fit with the way that my energy needs to flow, my whatever creative mm -hmm. energy that you have. Because um, I, you know, the, the older I get, the more I really need to pay attention to the type of energy that I'm bringing and the harder I'm finding it to force myself into some other kind of energy. So I don't know. I, You know, I hate it when we start using the word energy in that way. Because uh, I always feel like I'm going to go on an esoteric uh, tear, and I'm very critical of uh, <laughs> esotericism. So I don't, well, I don't mean like, energy, I don't let's... mean like frufu energy. I mean like, you know. No, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. <laughs> um, I was talking. I was thinking. I was talking to Hannah the other day about. I came across on Mastodon the idea of people having spoons. I don't know why spoons is the metaphor, but someone said, oh, "I don't have the spoons for that," and someone else had replied, "What do you mean?" and they were saying, like, for people who are who have some kind of disability, they find life in general harder in terms of getting stuff done, or maybe you've got um, chronic fatigue or, or whatever, 
and I'll probably misrepresent this, um, and if you're listening, please do correct, but um, it was saying that when you've only got an, a certain amount of energy or just concentration or, or willpower, whatever it is, saying that you've, you've basically got a few spoons, which spoons are you going to give to different activities is quite useful. And just saying, I haven't got the spoons for that, is just saying no to some things mm. so you can say yes to others. Um, but in, instead of being like all tech bro about it, um, you know, like I say no to lots of things so I can say yes to winning at life or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> 10 ways to win at life and have enough spoons. Exactly. Let's make a list of that, that's, <laughs> Let's do it. Anyway, let's pivot. Let's, let's pivot, pivot into um, the quotation of the week, which I have selected from a book which I think I talked about last week, which I've now finished, called How Everything Can Collapse. Yes. And this, and so this quotation is from that book, but it's by a guy called William Offals, I want to say. So it's... Um, when the, avail- when the available energy and resources can no longer maintain the existing level of complexity, the civilization begins to consume itself by borrowing from the future and feeding off the past, thereby preparing the way for an eventual implosion. Which is not the kind of happiest way of ending this podcast. As a- but given that, given that we've been talking about energy uses of cryptocurrency, given that we've been talking about, you know, like... Um, you know, geriatric millennials saving the world and dark patterns in terms and conditions and, and all that kind of stuff. I feel like it's an appropriate way to, to finish things off. Well, the next note is Laura is going on holiday. So I thought you chose that uh, quotation <laughs> to indicate how you would be feeling without me. Guess not. <laughs> oh, oh. Well, you're going away for three weeks to... Are you going away all three weeks to Finland or what's happening? I don't know if we're actually going to be able to go to Finland. Um, so we're going to head up through Sweden. Oh. Uh, Sweden Sweden did pandemic differently than other European countries, uh, as did Finland. Uh, so Finland is maybe not going to let us in, although I have had my first shot or jab, it's mm. called in near English. Um <laughs> So, yeah, so I don't know. We're going to kind of play it by ear, but I haven't taken any time off since Christmas time around. Yeah. Um, so it's time for a break and a um, little family time. And that means, dear listeners, that we will be back um, in the middle of June sometime with a mm. new installment. But we're planning on publishing three uh, now. So... Hopefully it gives you enough time. My vacation gives you enough time uh, to listen to all three episodes and then um, Mm. we'll be back in June. Cool. So we'll figure out how we're going to publish this and how we're going to syndicate it uh, at a time when it seems like Spotify and Apple are trying to enclose the whole podcast genre, Mm. but we'll make sure this is open in lines with our ethos um, and yeah, get this wherever you get your, your podcasts. I guess if you're listening to this, you already have. So there we go. Cheers for now, and we'll be back next month.